data engineering brief. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Data Engineering Brief, or Debrief for short. My name is Igor Masyagin, Dr. Igor Masyagin, and I'm a data platform engineer at Klarna. And I'm Pasha Finkelstein, developer advocate for data engineering at JetBrains. Uh, today we have five hot topics, six lightning news, and one interesting discussion. Stay tuned. First big thing we want to talk about is release of dbt 1.0. What is dbt dbt stands for data build tool and it's actually a thing which allows you to build model of your data which can be used by third parties or i don't know analysts or somebody else and dbt is gaining popularity extremely fast what do you mean by data model thank you for this question just imagine you have some storage in for example anchor model and you have lots of tables and each separate table would not describe any real entity any real domain object to describe any real domain object you need to gather to perform lots of uh, joins or other things i don't know unions and so on and querying anchor data models is extremely difficult you should be very well aware of what's going on in your in your storage dbt allows you to describe the whole i don't know for example dto or call it model for example your customer as yaml file actually yaml file with some sql inside inside it for example and you can put all your sql queries there inside yaml file and your end user for example your analyst will be able to cure your data more or less effortlessly and i think that it's a key of raising popularity of dbt so let me get this uh, straight you can take a yaml file that has a few sections like say uh, i take first name last name and um, address from this uh, sql query and maybe some this information I get from a CSV file that is on on my disk, yeah, absolutely. and something else from a S3 uh, bucket, for example. And that is will be will be collected and then can be used in uh, Java or some other place. Uh, if I understand color correctly, you can uh, use it right inside DBT itself. Mm. They have something called uh, DBT Studio, if if I am not mistaken. But yes, uh, the general idea is you can describe uh, your whole model by SQL and other sources. And then you, yeah, it's data modeling aspect of dbt. There are two more aspects. One of them is data testing. Obviously, it's more or less close to data modeling because to test your data, you sh should indeed have a model of your data. And the third interesting aspect is data documentation, because in some sense, DBT may provide you with all necessary knowledge about how you should, how and where you can collect data. As you mentioned, for example, we can say that we can gather first name of our customer in one table, second name, I don't know, share name of our customer in uh, another table because it's anchor i believe they should be in different tables because otherwise it, it will be slightly denormalized and so on am i right that uh, anchor is about six uh, sixth 
normal form of normalization? Uh, I don't know. Sorry. I, I, I believe I am. So, and YAML files are kind of very readable. It's actually a single source of truth about all your data or all your data which your analysts or other customers should use. The single YAML file can contain potentially the whole domain you want to describe. Uh, it will have uh, section models, call, uh, which will contain tables, columns, and constraints, and descriptions of each column, of course. It may contain um, all your sources, for example. It may be, I don't know, your SQL database, your uh, S3 bucket, and so on. And this way, the, you can build the comprehensive description of all your domain and all your models. And I believe that's why TBT is gaining a huge popularity these days. Do you know any other tools that does that, maybe in other languages or in other domains? There are different things like, uh, I don't know, Apache Atlas, which can perform part of this work. Yeah, there are some tools of, for built for metadata management, for example, Amundsen or Apache Iceberg, but uh, they are not competing with DBT. They work on other level. They usually work with your code and with some, I don't know, obscure JVM properties for you, for your Spark jobs. So I, I don't know, for your Hive queries. And also it doesn't allow you to build real queries and it doesn't uh, allow you to build, I don't know, some system for your analysts or people who want to just query your data and not dive deeply into the storage architecture. And that's what, uh, that's the problem which Atlas won't address at all. So I'm not sure that there is yeah, oh, there is a thing called Looker, mm. and I believe it's uh, comparable to DBT in some way, but it's a paid tool. So DBT is open source, and I, I believe that open source is our future. And I think Looker is more uh, UI-driven tool than like. But they have yeah, but they have this configs uh, for model management too. Mm. And I believe the format uh, of um, model description is YAML too. Mm. But yes, they're, they're, mod they're about UI, and that's about why they're more or less popular. Okay, enough talking about DBT. Check them out. They are released the major version, first major version, which is a, a, good, a good news if you're waiting to use it in production. Uh, take a look. Uh, you might find it useful. Let's move on to the next topic. Uh, the next topic we wanted to discuss is that uh, Redis JSON is out for public preview. As you might have heard, Redis um, main main maintainer of Redis recently left the project, and now the, there is a company called Redis Labs. They provide Redis as a cloud uh, service. There is the thing called Redis Cloud, and you can just use uh, Redis JSON there, which is basically a module for Redis that allows you to use JSON commands to extract some parameters from your 
values that you have in your database. Like uh, you can get, increment, uh, and um, delete, uh, access using pass and so on. Redis provides official client libraries for Java and Python, and there are many others for Go, Node.js, uh, .NET, PHP, and Ruby. And they also released uh, Redis Search, and they claim that the the performance that they achieve is uh, comparable to what you can have with uh, Elasticsearch and even faster. And you can use Redis JSON as a faster or better alternative than MongoDB. Uh, and uh, why would you want to replace MongoDB at all, you might ask? Pasha, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I, I have uh, some speculation about on this topic. Like recently, Several years ago, MongoDB changed their license from something completely open source to SSPL. Uh, SSPL is kind of open source library too, but it's uh, more prohibitive. It disallows usage of MongoDB in, for example, uh, cloud services. Really? Uh, okay. You can't provide uh, Mongo as SaaS service. And I'm not even sure that you can use MongoDB if you provide service based on MongoDB and uh, utilizing it, its API. And uh, I, I'm not really sure. Sorry, I'm not a lawyer. So uh, it's just my impression of uh, what SPL pro prohibits. Please check and uh, write in comments. So anyway, in, I don't know, Twitter, Slack, uh, where you will find us. What, the, what do you know about it? And we'll happily read it. Yeah, I have a question about Redis JSON, actually. Uh, do they allow some multi-document updates, or should I update every single document uh, I need to update? I wasn't able to find any info on that in the docs, but I just glanced over, so maybe there is uh, ways to do that, like multiple update, massive update of something somewhere. Uh, they do provide a lot of ways to update the indexes on some particular cases and accessing them. So I would assume there are some ma massive update situation. I'm just not sure how transaction-wise that will work because Redis has a very um, specific way of handling transactions usually. Uh, well, well, wait, it's uh, single-threaded, so potentially it should perform any single comment in transaction, right? Yeah. And uh, if, if, you, if you start transaction and then uh, do some uh, steps and then one of them fails, it would not be considered as a failed transaction. So unless you ro roll it out yourself, uh, roll back, you won't uh, do anything. So it's it's possible to just uh, use this as a try accept block or something. Yeah, so they don't basically have any rollbacks for their transa transactions, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I think it's worth mentioning that last years there is some idea that we should build something instead of MongoDB. Redis JSON is one more example, but a year ago or something like that, Postgres said that they, the performance of the JSON B uh, type is better than in MongoDB. And also there is a thing called FerretDB, as always you can find link in description which is open source substitute for MongoDB. It means that they use, they utilize the same API as MongoDB, but they do it on top of PostgreSQL. 
PostgreSQL. Mm. And it's kind of interesting thing. Uh, I, I, I think that FerretDB was started as like joke project, but then suddenly they found that there is some, some demand for such a thing. And they renamed it from MongoDB to FerretDB. And that, now they're trying to develop it and build this real, de- real replacement for MongoDB. I think actually one of our first communications ever was about JSONB uh, performance when we discussed that uh, you were you were claiming that it's so slow it's impossible to use it you would never use it. I'm not sure that I said this concrete thing, but what I know that there are pain points in usage of um, JSONB inside Postgres. For example, if you need to do something inside array, inside object in JSONB array or in JSONB object. It isn't possible with Postgres API. Uh, I mean, you can't update, I don't know, third element of array inside object. Mm. There is just no such such a comment. So I had to write script in Python with this my own hands, and which will download any single JSONB object locally, modify it, because Python obviously allows you to do such things, and will upload it back just replacing old value it and this was slow and painful process i see well there are limitations in everything so check the benchmarks check the rate is json and let's talk about something else one of the other things we noticed or you might have noticed that there were a lot of updates in december we will get back to it in our lighting sections but uh, one of the major updates that happens last december that is not related to any vulnerability patches is neo4j they released a version 4.4 one of the main feature is ability to impersonate some other user and uh, have their privileges or permissions without knowing their credentials so other tools like uh, Postgres and MySQL has similar feature that you can authenticate yourself as some other user and then pretend uh, that you are that person and then maybe your uh, access structure would be different and then you can do that. And now you can do that in Neo4j as well. But let's just talk a bit about graph databases in general. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm not sure. Do you know? when do you need graph databases i know one real use case i like any social network is basically a huge a graph, graph. Database. yeah yeah it may be not graph database but it's a huge graph it's called social graph and you usually want to find some i don't know uh, tendencies uh, or some hidden connections between vertices in this in this graph and that's where uh, graph databases will shine. What else do we have? Who else need graph databases? That's a good question. You know, like when you try to study any online class on data science, uh, usually you end up uh, learning a lot about this Iris dataset and uh, uh, what else? Monist uh, and some other, something else like tips. I think the another popular one. Iris is about uh, flowers or something like that. Yeah. Monist is about uh, letter recognition. Uh, number uh, written yeah. Letters, uh, uh, number recognition, sorry. And tips is uh, something that uh, some of, uh, some waiter tracked uh, his tips uh, over some 
meaning full time and then just uh, you can see that uh, people who smoke and order coffee tip more or something like that so with when you study graph databases there is always this stupid example of karate club and a small group of uh, students that were attending the same karate group and how they relate to each other and usually all examples are focused on that i would say that this sort of limits your view on this graph database that it always needs to be connected to people but actually that's uh, you can go beyond that and say that for example you want to have some very weird data collection process that there are some points that collect data then you aggregate and uh, points above them and then you want to build this uh, sort of different levels of granularity in your data for particular uh, again it might be geographical data it might be uh, your department structure or something like that so i would say this again department structure is already back to humans but uh, you can probably come up with some other examples i have some synthetic example actually i am a huge coffee lover i mean i know lots of different kinds of uh, coffee and i know that every kind of coffee has its own specific specific attributes like this has more chocolate flour it has i don't know some strawberry flour it's uh high mountain it's uh, lower mountain coffee and so on and imagine that you want to find for any given customer of your small coffee shop you want to recommend the best coffee based on their ratings so you're trying to connect different kinds of coffee to their specific attributes and then you're trying to find based based on this uh, on ratings of coffee by this concrete customer you're trying to find the best suitable next coffee for them for example he, you can find that uh, they love uh, high mountain coffee with uh, berry fl berry flowers and with some something else i don't know um, middle, middle roasted for example and usually you do that with some recommendation systems which which involve huge matrices that has some particular values in a particular like item item matrix or something and that's exactly one of the ways to represent graph in a table form and those graph databases basically allow you to do something like a more meaningful requests to that data like find nearest neighbors of this particular point nearest neighbor or the kind of coffee or verti vertical with best uh, best suiting our needs also we should say that uh, almost all huge provider uh, cloud providers have their own graph databases gcp and aws provide our db it's uh, Neo4j Ceres. Amazon also have uh, its own Neptune, and Azure has Cosmos DB. And it looks like they have at least some popularity. It's very interesting because at the first glance, it looks like graph databases are not that popular. Still, Neo4j is alive and it's being actively developed, and that's very cool. Yeah, the Neo4j itself has two main language en engines, uh, Cypher and uh, Gremlin. And Cypher is its own uh, language, but Gremlin is an API for graph database. And technically, Gremlin is a graph database uh, or database engine itself. And you write uh, very uh, well, 
Gremlin looks a bit more like Java code, and if you write Cypher, it looks more more like Lua expressions. Actually, Gremlin is groovy, and Graph, Data, Graph, Graph Engine is Apache Tinkerpop. Cypher is just a part of Apache Tinkerpop framework. Cypher or Gremlin? Oh, I'm sorry. Gremlin is just a part of Apache Tinkerpop framework. And yes, I personally don't like Cypher at all because it has very weird notations with some arrows and so on. I prefer to write some code. And Gremlin is more about looks like code and not something crazy. For me, for me, Cypher is really much less readable. Yeah, there is one other disadvantage that I found that uh, Cypher is a term to describe a freestyle rap in a group. So when you search uh, internet for something like Cypher tips, you might end up in, in the wrong internet neighborhood, if you know what I mean. Uh, but speaking of writing code, Neo4j actually have a desktop and a browser interface, so you might avoid writing code altogether. And it has a lot of plugins for different visualization and explorations. And uh, for example, this year, Advent of Code had a lot of graph-related problems. And I, I wonder if you can just load your data in uh, in a system like that and then try to solve it uh, with uh, particularly clever queries. So this might be a fun project to to do yeah i know one person who solved this year's advent of code in sqlite and now i know that the next interesting challenge is to solve advent of code in uh, neo4j yeah <laughs> very stupid one but uh, well but still. A, a fun one yes and uh, speaking of popularity uh, i constantly or rather regularly see that aureli gives away neo4j book for free uh, at least in my YouTube recommendations, it pop-ups uh, main like once uh, every couple of months. So if you want to learn a bit more about Neo4j, maybe you should just wait a while and just search the internet and uh, O'Reilly's uh, websites and you will find out that uh, you can grab their uh, free book about that. So that's all we wanted to talk about Neo4j. And let's move to our lightning news. Apache IoTDB 0.12.4 is released and it has one major feature, which is group by and on multiple levels, which I think is quite an interesting thing for IoT. Yep. And unless you've been living under the rock, you should be aware that there's been some major vulnerabilities with Log4j. So if you look at GitHubs of all major vendors, you will see a lot of minor and patch releases, uh, NiFi, Flink, uh, Ignite, and uh, etc. Take a look at what you're using, update your infrastructure, and un unless you already done that, uh, it's it's a good thing to do. Apache Cult 1.29.0 released, and it's an engine which allows you to build SQL queries over everything. Of course, it fixes vulnerability with Log4j. Apache Beam released a new release once again, and uh, it's a minor release, but it has three breaking changes. And I think it's the last time we mentioned it here because they release new versions quite often. So unless something very big comes out, we will try not to mention it once again, but uh, yeah, take a look at it. Uh, maybe the breaking changes will concern you. 
Lake FS released two. These folks look like they they just never stop. This time they have released some performance improvements. They have added new open API method and they have added new security check. Apache ORC released a new version 1.7.2. And uh, well, it's just good to know that this format is still alive. It's being developed. They, uh, in this version, they released a row level filtering in uh, it's a row level filtering in the column of storage format. So it, uh, it's actually at a reader level. And now you can use a row level predicates when you return rows from the system. Also, Apple Mac A1 chips become more and more popular. And if you wanna try uh, your software on ARM server, there is such an opportunity Oracle has free tier of ARM servers. Yeah, and as I understand, those ARM servers are quite uh, powerful. Yeah, they are. Well, for free tier, they're extremely powerful. Yes. So that's enough lightings for this time. Let's move on to a general discussion we have today. Today, we wanted to discuss the topic of reverse ETL. So let's talk first what is ETL, what is ELT, and what is reverse ETL? Well, in my understanding, ETL is extract, transform, and load, and that's how usually Spark and other ETL tools works. And ELT is extract, load, transform. It's when you load your data to some sync, and then in sync itself transforms the data somehow. But regarding reverse ETL, it's not that transparent and that's not that obvious i'm not sure how do you define reverse etl that's a good question the idea is that etl is a process when you move everything from different sources inside one particular place uh, whether it's data lake or lake house or data warehouse and then you might end up in a situation where you have business critical data available only in this particular system and then it becomes uh, data storage or facility or prison for your data and you want to use that data outside of that facility and that's when you will move your data from the data lake to other systems so it might be some other database or maybe same sources you used but just a particular process that you do to move data outside of your uh, analytical platform Okay, but usually we have separate database for our analysts. I don't know some showcase database. Is it already? Is it still considered to be a part of I don't know data lake, or or is it a completely different entity? Is loading there, loading data there is reverse detail? I don't really have any clear answer to that, but I think I have a more unclear, <laughs> or muddy, dirty answer here that uh, reverse ETL is when you this process of loading stuff into this database becomes business critical so you want to have some monitoring sla slo and uh, stuff like that on that particular pipeline you have as long as you have that it means that you would need attention to that process and you want to have uh, particular processes to that you cannot allow that pipeline to just disappear for a couple of hours and then when you're like for example it's not uncommon for data lake that uh, the pipelines are run in early morning 
and then you don't usually want to wake up your on-call engineers for that. Uh, you usually just uh, wait until the start of the business day. When analysts come to work, they see that some data is missing. They uh, talk to their data engineers and they fix it during the day. And then, well, the report gets delayed uh, for a couple of hours. If that's okay, then probably that's not a reverse ETL situation. But say, for example, you have an e-commerce platform and you want to have personalized discounts for your customers. And that process calculates some probability of uh, why you, someone would buy that and uh, how much of a discount you want to put on that particular person or group of customers. And that process runs daily. And then if it fails, you don't have those weights in your system at the start of the business day. And that's might be problematic. So that would be a reverse ETL, in my understanding, at least. So you're saying basically that reverse everything, uh, reverse ETL is everything, every ETL, which is business critical? Uh, which is business critical and which has your data warehouse as a source. But what is my data? What should I include? include in the definition of my warehouse. I mean, I have multiple layers of data in my warehouse usually, but on the other hand, I can have uh, the whole data lake built from, I don't know, Greenplum, for example, or Redshift. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I, I usually have ETL right inside my warehouse. I extract and load data from one layer to, uh, to another. For, for example, I can extract data from my bronze layer clear it up, validate it, and then uh, load it in, into my silver layer in terms of Databricks data lake, for example. And it sounds like it's always business critical. Yeah, okay, it can be late for some time, but sometimes it just can't because you need to build your report right now for a manager because your manager has uh, his very important meeting, has their very important meeting, and so on. Yeah, you're, you're correct about that, that uh, this definition sounds like someone just wanted to create a new name for something that we already do. Yeah, uh, but I have some counterexample. It, uh, uh, well, slightly different example. If we are doing our ETL from our, I don't know, the whole warehouse to operational databases, it's uh, like we count something, we crunch some numbers and so on. And then we put the result at, into operational databases for them to operate, uh, you know, I don't know, more correct. It sounds like reverse ETL because we are definitely loading data from our warehouse. Yeah, but that's, that's not a new thing. You always want to, to separate your analytical processes from your operational processes. And that's, that's why I'm making this point that uh, when you have someone on call for that, that would probably be an operational part of it. So that's why that part would be in the reverse ETL. I just think that if I have the only thing like Fivetran in my company and in the night Fivetran stops working, it sounds like I, all, everything I have is reverse ETL because Fivetran is the only thing I have. That's why I would say that your second definition, that it's when you, I load my data from my warehouse, it's more correct. Maybe it's not about about business critical data. It may be business uncritical data. I'm sorry for this. <laughs> I'm not sure what what uncritical data is. Uh, data which nobody uses ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but still, uh, I, I hope you got my point. 
if you load your data from the big storage to smaller one, then it looks like it may be a candidate for it to be called reverse ETL. From a bigger one to a smaller one. Hmm. Yeah. Like warehouse is a huge thing. And when I load data into Postgres, it's Postgres is tiny compared to warehouse and it, it may be reverse ETL. But if it is the only Postgres, then it's still ETL because it's just usually it means it's it's just part of my warehouse. Like we usually load data from, I don't know, from Hadoop to Vertica and uh, Vertica has usually single instance for analysts, but that's fine. It's, we still call it ETL. But you, you, you wouldn't use uh, that particular instance for something operational, right? I'm not sure why. Because you, that would affect analysts and the analyst load might affect operational load then. I believe that analytical workload is, uh, I mean, I, I won't use it for writing data there, but I may use it for querying because analysts queries are usually so complex that nothing can make them worse. Like you, you can issue hundreds of simple selects, but sim single aggregation in analyst work workload will beat them all. Yeah, but that would mean that uh you have unpredictable behavior in your system because some analyst will do some particular query and then your operational, um, I don't know, some microservice that reads the data would not be able to cure it or will not be able to cure it in a particular timely fashion, which would be a problem. It won't fit into SLO, right? Yeah. Fair enough. What about case of loading data to some in-memory database, which, is, which stands behind some I don't know, backend service, which has external API and your customers can query this API. I would say that that's a case of reverse ETL, as long as if there is, uh, if that service does not uh, communicate with, uh, the, with the lake house itself. For example, if it's a cache and you have a cache miss, the regular solution would be to then go to a slower database and then put it back to a cache, right? Yeah. But uh, if you do that, then it's not a reverse ETL. That's uh, just a basic caching. But still, it's, it still sounds like ETL, but it's just it's just called from other side. I don't know from our backend service. Like, give me this data. We are we are, we are actually performing ETL in reverse order yes that's why it's called reverse ctl not like no not like i mean i mean this cache uh read through thing is still looks like reverse ctl no because our no because if 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 in that particular case you have a lot of cache misses then you would that would affect your lake house basically kinda but that's an issue it's still, it, it is still ETL and it is still reverse. But that process is a different process. So the process of loading data to the cache is one particular like uh, daily daily load. And the cache just occurs when you have humans using your microservice. Actually, what you say that it's bad design decision to read, uh, to create a read through cache reading from, I don't know, my warehouse because it will be slow and unpredictable. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's correct to not call it reverse ETL. It's just reverse ETL with bad design. <laughs> don't do such things. <laughs> yeah, okay. Reverse ETL the bad way.
I don't know. Okay, let me try another definition. Yeah. So say you have a data data warehouse in your company and you have some sources when you load it. And this is one set of sources that gets loaded to your data warehouse. And then you have other teams that use different tools, different instruments, and they don't want to... And you have like particular process of... Uh, getting new tools into your data warehouse platform or getting a new source and you have other teams that want want to use the results of some analytical work that you do in a data warehouse but they don't want to go through this complicated process of adding stuff to your uh, warehouse or the same rule for sources they want their own particular process and they want to use whatever they want to use. And you don't really care about their particular systems. You just say, okay, just uh, tell me what system you're going to use. I will have uh, an engineer that will write some code to load to the data. And I just don't really care. Just uh, don't go, don't come to me with uh, querying data. I will load it to your system. And then I will be sure that I have predictable load on my system. So that particular process would be a reverse tail. By the way, how do you think if I use Kafka as, I don't know, some some sync for my data. I have crunched some numbers again, and then I put results into Kafka. Is it And then other services, which I don't care about, actually, can read from Kafka and use this data. Is it reverse ETL? Uh, I would say yes, but usually Kafka is part of your lake house uh, or yeah, your, it's just your ingestion layer, right? Uh, it's... It, it, I, I, by the way, I'm not even sure that it's correct to call Kafka ingestion layer. Ingestion is when I ingest something. If I don't ingest from some topic, it's not ingestion anymore. And also, I'm not sure that any, I don't know, message source may be called a part of my data warehouse because usually we tend to say that we store data in our warehouse more or less for infinite time. Okay, for very long time. And Kafka is usually not built for such a workload. Of course, they have tier storage in Kafka Enterprise, in Kafka, I don't, I don't remember how it's called, Confluent Edition of Kafka, uh, which is paid. But usually you don't, you just want, don't want to do this. Yeah. So at least we we gave some definitions, some possible definitions of reverse ETL. No, no. If you want to hype on this topic, just check what you're doing and then maybe update your CV with points like I'm doing reverse ETL just by submitting stuff to Kafka from my Spark job. That would be something. I just think that reverse ETL is LTE. LTE. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Which <laughs> is a nice uh, progressive metal band. Absolutely. So that's all. Uh, we wish you to have a nice day. Take care of yourself, take care of your data warehouse and your ETL processes and all your data pipelines. Briefing is over. Bye. Bye.